What would the philosopher Plato have to say about Donald Trump and the future of a constitutional republic? Stay tuned. Bert Cohen here, keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. If you were to ask a sample of average Americans what the difference is between a republic and a tyranny, I wonder what you'd hear. Here we are, and the great American political experiment is nearly 250 years old now. Where the heck are we? Are we quickly approaching a negative answer to Benjamin Franklin's famous response when a citizen asked what sort of government the founders had given us? His visionary response was, a republic, if you can keep it. Can we keep it into the rest of the 21st century? Is it so tarnished by the dominance of current centers of power and wealth, namely small but great self-interested corporate and financial blocs, are we succeeding in keeping a rep Republican form of government? <sighs> the question we face today and in our future goes much farther back than the American War of Independence. In fact, it goes back to perhaps the greatest, most enduring political philosophic writings at the foundation of a Repub our Republican form of government, Plato. Plato remains a central figure in the history of philosophy, and his concerns are remarkably relevant to current existential problems, many of which, of course, we prefer not to see. Plato was perhaps most famous for we history buffs as the author of The Republic, or his allegory of the cave, as you probably recall from college, or if he went to a good high school. I knew he lived a very long time ago, but... I confess, I had to look up as to when this remarkably prescient, perhaps timeless philosopher lived and wrote. It was around the 5th century BCE in ancient Greece. But here it's the mid-20s of the 21st century today. Might his 1,500-year-old thoughts offer us signposts for a better path forward? And aside from political philosophy, several of his famous dialogues discuss ethics, including virtue and vice, pleasure and pain, crime and punishment, justice and medicine. Big stuff. If your eyes are already starting to glaze over, well, what we'll see in today's Keeping Democracy Alive is that according to our guest, Professor Melissa Lane, the work of Plato transcends mere historic time, and his concerns and answers are applicable and perhaps offer hope for today and tomorrow. Melissa Lane is professor of politics at Princeton University, along with her role as an associated faculty member at the Department of Classics and the Department of Philosophy at Princeton, and professor of rhetoric at Gresham College. Her new book is Of Rule and Office, Plato's Ideas of the Political. It offers a unique perspective, exceedingly useful for where we find ourselves in America today, and that happens to be rooted in ancient Greek and Roman political thought. Melissa Lane, thank you so much for being with us today and keeping democracy alive. Thank you, Bert. Great to be with you. What, what stimulated you to write this book, and who is the intended audience? I started to think about this book about a decade ago of Rule and Office that was published, as you say, in 2023. And I was thinking about it when I realized that the question of office holding and officials in a democracy, executive officers, in a democracy or a republic has actually been really little thought about at that moment. Of course, things have changed, as we'll be talking about. But 10 years ago, 
when you thought about ancient democracy, you thought about the courts, you thought about the assembly, you didn't really think about the people who held executive office. And similarly, political scientists today, and certainly political theorists, which is the kind of political scientist that I am, the more philosophical side of the field, um, there was really relatively little interest in executive office compared to Congress, legislatures, courts. And so I started to think, well, you know, where is this in the text of the Greek thinkers whom I was studying? And I, to my surprise, I found that it's all over the text of Plato once you know the expressions and the idioms um, to look for. So who, who is the intended audience? Is this, is, uh, I, I don't imagine it's a book for the general public, but maybe it is. What, do, what are your thoughts on that? Who is the intended well, I, you know, I mean, it, it, it grew into a very big book. So so in that sense, I think that will probably uh, limit its readership a little bit. Yeah. But and, and, and in some ways, of course, it's an academic book. It's offering a way to read Plato, making ideas of rule and office central to his political philosophy, um, it, which are not topics. If you look at the index of most Plato studies or even just studies of Greek democracy, those aren't going to be the main topics you find in the index, but I want to say that they should be. Mm. Um, but I do think that that the book speaks to ideas of, of tyranny, of anarchy, of the nature of citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I actually think and hope that people will find their way to it and, and find something valuable in it. Well, I want to ask definition of terms, always a good place to start. What did Plato mean by the word republic? How did it emerge from ancient Greek political thought and the real conditions of life for the average person back then? So the word that we translate republic, um, in Greek, the title of that great dialogue by Plato is politeia. And the best Greek translation in that context is actually constitution. So Plato is talking not specifically only about a Republican form of constitution. He's talking about what is it for any constitution to count as a constitution at all. So the term republic actually comes from the Latin. Um, Cicero wrote a work mirroring Plato's work and kind of models on it. And he called that De Republica. And he refers to Plato's work as De Republica. And so that's where we get the notion that it's called Republic. But I think we can think about it as constitution. And I make a, a point in our rule and office that Plato thought he's a constitutionalist thinker, which again is uh-huh. not the way that he's usually been read. Right. Mm. The, the world from which the Republic emerged, you say, featured many oligarchies. Is that similar to today? Because, I mean, we have somewhat of a democracy, but there's also there's a lot of oligarchic uh, pressure cooking. Well, what's interesting about your question, Bert, is that it suggests, I think, rightly that there's a there's a sliding scale. There's a kind of continuum. Right? A regime can be more or less oligarchic. It can be more or less democratic. So in the world that Plato was born into, as you said, in the uh, late 5th century um, BCE, um, the main kinds of regimes were either oligarchies, which had a limited franchise based on wealth and Mm -hmm. where the offices in particular were reserved for only people who had substantial wealth. And then democracies like Athens that Plato was born into, um, where all free 
men were citizens, well, who, who you know, who were native or had been naturalized were citizens um, without a property qualification for citizenship. Although, interestingly, even in Athens, um, there had been and arguably still were some property qualifications for holding office. And we might want to talk about that more because that's a way in which even in a democracy, as you say, there can be oligarchic dimensions right. even to a regime that calls itself a democracy. Well, certainly in in uh, the formerly Great Britain, it's not so great anymore. Uh, there's the, you know the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and the United States Senate here was intended to be as a check on the uh, uh, excessive democracy and uh, to protect the uh, the ruling wealthy class. I believe. What about this friction between the drives for plutocracy, oligarchy, and for a republic is if that is that friction eternal can it ever effectively be resolved or is it is that just unrealistic do you think i think it is a friction that we see front and center in our ancient greek and roman um sources and in ancient greek and roman history and and i think it's really important to kind of recognize how stark and clear those issues are so the central question of greek political thought was what should be the relationship politically between the rich and the poor? That is the question. And then depending on how you answered that question, you ended up more in an oligarchy or more in a democracy. And for those people who were trying to set up a democracy or what the Romans would call a republic, um, those, that, that required specific institutional interventions to try to control the power of wealth. So they didn't um, they didn't expropriate the wealthy, but they did control the way that they could use their wealth politically, and they limited the kind of reach that wealth could give you politically. And that that was a kind of central part of what it was to do a democratic politics. Uh-huh. We could use a little, well, a lot more of that these days. And uh, here's a name you knew had to come up in our discussion of Plato, Donald Trump. He presents us with both chaos and the prospect of tyranny. Your analysis of Plato's thoughts offers an interesting perspective on what Plato saw as the relation between tyranny and anarchy, and that the Greek word anarchia, I guess, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. What about the tyranny and anarchy there? Yeah, so exactly. Anarchia um, is, is the idea that there's no one in office or no one ruling, but interestingly, the Greeks sometimes used that term to, to signal, well, there was someone officially in office, but they had so grossly failed to carry out the duties of the office, or they had been sort of in, in, improperly put there. And so there, yeah. they would later remember that year of, in which that person had been in office, not by their name, but rather and call it a year of anarchy, a year of anarchia. And I find that a really important idea because what it's saying is there always has to be a, a moral dimension to holding a political office. You have to be oriented to caring for the good of the ruled. And if you're not, if, if holding the office doesn't shape your behavior or constrain your behavior, if you don't recognize the demands of the office, in, in in the way that you act, then there's a real sense in which I think you're not acting up to the demands of the office. And so the Greeks would say you're not really in office. In that case, that is a condition of anarchy. Um, you have to look within, not just, you know, look look without when when you're when you're assessing that. Mm -hmm. Does Trump adhere to 
and promote anarchia? And if so, in so doing, would Plato say he abdicated his office? Sort of a combination of tyranny and anarchy. Right. So what's right? So exactly. What's kind of interesting about that relationship between tyranny and anarchy is that you know we we often think anarchy is a kind of absence, but what Plato actually says is because a tyrant is so unbounded, because they don't recognize the constraints of their office, then it kind of merges into anarchy. So what looks like this incredible source of power actually ended up, ends up sort of not being properly constituted power at all. And, you know, I, I, I do think that um, a, a president who um, fomented an insurrection against the uh, constitutionally required counting of votes and certification of votes um, in the United States Congress, I do think that that sort of, um, in my view, failure to take care, which is part of the president's duty, according to the Constitution, their failure to take care of the Constitution as a whole and of that process of government as a whole, I do see that as as an abdication of the kind that the Greeks would then call a nullification um, of, of that office, a, a case of anarchy. Interesting. Boy, Plato had some vision being, you know, 1,500 years ago, more than, 50, more than 2,000 years ago, actually, about it's a long, long time ago. It's amazing how uh, his insight uh, could go so far, so far into the future. And your book is titled of rule and office, at least according to the aspirational desires of the founders of our republic, office holders are there to serve the public and not be rulers over us. How, how has this worked out? The vocabulary of offices plays a pivotal role uh, in your book. How does this terminology enhance our comprehension of Plato's philosophy, and why is it significant? Great. So... Exactly. I think, you know, we've come to throw around the term of public servant. That's become a kind of cliche when we talk about public officials. But the Greeks actually took that language very seriously. And they actually thought of it as kind of paradoxical. Because if you think about archaic politics, think about a king or a, or a tyrant, um, that's someone who's a, who's a master, in a sense, right? They're a powerful person, you know, high up in a hierarchy. And so when, with the idea of office holding, which is, and, and I see office holding, I define it, um, and I see it defined by Plato and other Greek contemporaries as limited and accountable positions of rule. Yeah. So it's term limited, it's limited in the powers that it holds, that it, that it has, and to hold an office, you have to be judged qualified to hold it, and you have to be held accountable for your behavior in it, and we can explore how that might be done. But in all those ways, that turns you from a master into a servant. It makes you literally a public servant, and that paradox that there's still somebody who is ruling, you still have the power to issue commands and you know, punish people if they don't obey those commands or, you know, initiate a process by which they would be punished. So you have those powers of rule, but by holding them as an office holder in these limited, accountable, constitutional ways, that's what makes it possible for you to actually be considered a servant. And the Greeks have all kinds of wonderful imagery of a guardian, a steward, mm -hmm. a servant, 
there's a lot of Greek comedy that kind of revolves around that transformation. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the real roots of our democracy, going back to Plato, the great philosopher Plato. Our uh, guest today is a professor of politics at Princeton University, Melissa Lane. She's got a new book out called Of Rule and Office, Plato's Ideas of the Political. So we're talking about public servants and who's there to do what. And Plato said that the guardians need guarding. I think that's interesting. How, and as you were describing that, it seems like, boy, that concern has really manifested itself today that, that the guardians need guarding. What did Plato say about holding the guardians accountable? Yeah, so this is a great question. So that phrase, who will guard the guardians, actually comes from a later Roman poet, um, but Plato says something not quite as as pithily um, in one of his dialogues. He says, you know, if we have these office holders, how can we find an office holder above them who would be capable of straightening out the crooked ones? That's almost an exact quote. And I love that, that, that language that we use of, you know, a crooked official who has to be straightened out. That's already in Plato's Greek and in, in his conception. Um, now, what, what he's building on is the fact that all of these constitutional regimes around him at the time, oligarchies and democracies, they all had procedures of auditing their officials to hold them accountable. So at the end of a uh -huh. term of office, there would be another group of officials, and you had to give literally a financial account, and at Athens also you had to defend your conduct as an office holder against any charges or complaints that any member of the public might make. And if you were thought that you might be have been corrupt, then you'd be referred to a court trial and you could be actually exiled, fined, or even put to death. So this was really serious stuff. Um, and until you passed your audit, you couldn't actually um, invest money, for example, or you know spend money in certain ways because they didn't want you spending all your ill-gotten gains before you could pay them back. Um, so Plato, I think, is really, I think, taking his cue from these kinds of institutions and saying, okay, so then we have the problem. We have these, these auditors who guard the guardians. They mm -hmm. guard the first order officials. Now, who's going to guard the auditors? And, you know, we have this kind of recursive problem. Uh, and I think Plato is exploring different ways that you can solve that. You can solve that by having higher order guardians who are maybe ex-office holders, who are um, especially sort of qualified and wise in order to keep their eye on the people currently in office. Um, or you can solve it by really beefing up the laws and the legal procedures. You can really... Um, uh, beef up um, anti-corruption laws, you can prevent office holders from even being able to get additional earnings beyond their wages, mm. for example. That's something that Plato recommends in the Republic. Um, and then I think he is concerned with what you mentioned at the beginning, the whole system of sort of public culture and the citizenry that's actually, you know, concerned themselves also um, with, with having um, good rule. Uh, I, I, it makes me think about so many different things about, uh, you know, I, I, w I wish we could have uh, what Plato envisioned about having guardians and having you know, real, real uh, controls over uh, controlling corruption. And uh, it, it's, mm, it's, it's a tough challenge. And, and what Plato talked about, I mean, he had 
this vision in, in many levels of existence of there's the real and there's the ideal. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, we're never going to get to the ideal. However, it seems to me we should always be uh, working toward that. In that context, what would Plato's ideal rulers look like? Give me some fantasy here. <laughs> yeah, so so absolutely, that difference between the real and the ideal, you've gone to the heart of Plato's, you know, Plato's thought, as I try to do also in a rule in office, um, in the sense that, you know, He's aware that we may not realize an ideal polity or an ideal society, but it can still orient us. It can give us a standard to judge by. And I think that really remains an important vision. Um, one of the things I want to emphasize is that Plato explores a range of different political models. So many people may have only heard of his dialogue, The Republic, and there we have philosopher kings and queens who are Really, I think we can think of them as people who are not motivated by ordinary um, desires for power, ordinary appetites. Um, and it's because they're actually more interested in study and learning that they can be trusted with this very high power of guarding the guardians. And their role in doing that is really a role of um, scrutinizing and testing the people who would come into office to make sure that they're up for the task. And there Plato's again building on things that really happened in Greek democracies and Greek oligarchies, especially in Athens, actually a, a democracy, where if someone was chosen for a public office, they weren't actually allowed to take up the office until there had been a, a test run, a scrutiny run, to say, had they paid their taxes? Were they a citizen in good standing? You know, were they sort of properly behaving? And literally, whether they paid their taxes, that was one of those tests. And if they couldn't prove that they had paid all their taxes, they weren't allowed to take up the office. So I think Plato is looking at some very concrete institutions um, here. Uh, if we'd only had Plato around now, we wouldn't have ever had the orange thing in the White House. <clears throat> uh, and Plato talks about something that is too little thought of these days. It's a quaint old notion, virtue. What did Plato see as the role of virtue, and where is that now? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, so the Greek word arete, which we translate often as virtue, it can also be translated as excellence. And sometimes that's uh -huh. interesting to uh -huh. think about. Uh -huh. So we can talk about the arete of a knife is to cut well, right? So the thought is, what is it that enables us to do what we do well as human beings? And what do we do well? Like we try to live well. We try to exercise good judgment. We try to make good choices. We want to be happy. We want to flourish and sort of, you know, develop our capacities. And so the virtues are really the things that enable us to do all of those things well. And even in Plato's day, I mean, this is something that I think is really important about the Greeks. I think too often when people talk about the ancient Greeks and they talk about Plato, they think, oh, well, you know, they just had their head in the clouds. They didn't ask these, these skeptical hard questions that we asked. You know, we asked, you know, why be virtuous? That's just being a mug. You know, why not be vicious and kind of get away with it? Right. Actually, that's the whole premise of Plato's book, The Republic. The whole premise of the book, The Republic, is an attempt to show why you shouldn't try to free ride and get away with treating others unjustly. Why actually 
treating people justly is part of what enables you to flourish, to have friendships, to, or, to, to enjoy kind of everyday interactions. And that's what the tyrant can't have. So it's really like, like the tyrant is, turns out to be a, 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 the true anarchist, but he also turns out to be the most unhappy person. Because <laughs> if you're a tyrant, you can't trust anyone. You can't have any true friends. No one's going to want to be your friend because they know that you might just turn on them at any instant, at any <laughs> instant and just milk them for what you can get of them. And I think, honestly, you know, when we when we read um, Mary Trump's um, study of Trump, I think we actually see how that kind of profound narcissism makes someone miserable in certain important ways. You know, they may not realize it always themselves, perhaps, when we look at the way that, you know, profound narcissists behave. But I was very persuaded by the portrait um, that she gave. And I think that that Plato teaches us why that's so. Uh, so true. And uh, it's it's amazing, that, once again, the vision that he had. And today, in addition to that orange guy who we'll leave behind here for a few moments anyway, we have a Supreme Court that rather directly goes up against the expressed values of uh, Plato and his definition of public service. They rule from the bench without regard for the public will. Uh, they use the Constitution, but yeah, twist it around quite a bit. And they've made a, a few of them have uh, uh, benefited personally rather handsomely. What would Plato have to say about this situation? What would he have with regard to suggestions for change on the Supreme Court and how it's set up? So I think this is a really interesting comparison because often people pl criticize Plato's Republic and say, oh, he has these philosopher kings and queens. You know, he's not a Democrat. But of course, what are the philosopher kings and queens? They are guardians who are ultimately responsible for maintaining the health of the Constitution, and they're not accountable in most of the ordinary ways, like other office holders. So that question of who will the guard the guardians, you know, really bites for them. And it's exactly the same as the Supreme Court. If we say, you know, a cabal of, of a small group of people who are unaccountable in most ordinary ways and are serving for a lifetime with the greatest power, mm -hmm. that describes Plato's guardians and it also describes ah, the United true. States Supreme Court, right? Mm. Um, so I think what Plato then would say is what he does say, and this is what, again, I, I emphasize in of rule and office. It's a very different way of reading the Republic, but it's there on the face of the, the text, is that he emphasizes even the people who are most virtuous and wise, even if you had, if you were sure you had the most virtuous and wise people in that Supreme Court bench, you would still need to impose, and he would still impose, very stringent um, constraints on them mm -hmm. in terms of their ability to benefit their families and their ability to acquire and accumulate property. And those two constraints are absolutely explicit in the Republic at the end of book three and the beginning of book four. Plato says the guardians should not be able to accumulate gold and silver. They should have only the minimum of property. They should have to live on their wages. And he even wants to go so far as to deny them any knowledge of their family kin, any private family life at all. So I think today what that's telling us is, you know, the Supreme Court has now adopted, finally, only very recently, an ethics uh, right. code for themselves. But 
Plato would say that code does not go nearly far enough. That code needs to say they have to live on their wages. They shouldn't be getting any other gifts or speaking fees. You know, what's the reason for that? And their family um, also should be subject to much more stringent um, disclosure and accumulation requirements. Why? Because Plato was exactly concerned. He says this explicitly in the Republic. He says, if not, they will become the hostile masters of the other citizens uh-huh. rather than their allies. That's that's pretty much a direct quote, again, wow. from memory. Yeah, he's, he's, um, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, so, so I think that, you know, I think that um, the, the, the situation where you have people with 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 almost no conventional accountability but very great power that's exactly the situation in which plato was profoundly worried that um, even the wisest and most virtuous of people would be tempted to misuse their power and he wants to put legal con- constitutional constraints in place um to prevent that so so he might have not felt too good about uh Ginny thomas clarence thomas's uh, wife <laughs> And but and it makes me think about the image of of justice, blind justice. You know, the the woman of justice is blindfolded, not to be distracted well, by anything, just holding the the weights, the scale, and just to see it. Well, actually, I have to I have to intervene there because actually, it's a very interesting fact that I only recently kind of started to think about, which is that the Greeks don't depict justice as blindfolded. Actually, their goddesses of justice are clear sighted. Um, this seems to huh. be this innovation of justice being blind seems to be a late 16th century innovation. And there's been a lot of scholarship on this recently. It's become so widespread as an ideal. And we see it on statues that look like they're ancient statues. So we all think yep. it. But actually, um, and, and one of the reasons I think that's interesting is that I think it goes back to your point about oligarchy. I think the Greeks depict justice as clear sighted because they're saying, justice has to see what's really going on. We can't be blinded yeah. and kind of distracted from the real truth of what's happening. And I think actually in our current moment, that's that's a good moral to take away as well. Morals and ethics, what a concept. And aside from Plato, another seemingly timeless political philosopher is Niccolò Machiavelli. They, too, lived about a thousand years apart, but how would Plato view the ethics-deprived political philosophy of Machiavelli and the effects he's had on powerful people, too many to name? So so, Matt, so, I, so I started to say earlier, and then I interrupted oh, myself, that, no, no, no. I mean, I started to say that um, Plato wrote more than just the Republic, he, and in his other works, we we get sort of a, an interesting, different set of political models. But the reason I mention that now in response to your question about Machiavelli is that Machiavelli also actually wrote two important works of political philosophy, ah. and we usually only think of one. Right. So most of us have heard of The Prince yes. by Machiavelli, yes. which reads like an advice manual for a prince who might end up this is a little bit of a, of a of a caricature, but it can be read as an advice manual for a prince who might end up like a tyrant, right? How can you just get power and hold it? Should you use force or fraud? Should you try to have people love you or fear you? The, in the prince, Machiavelli says, "Fear you mm-hmm. rather than love you." Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, you know, giving examples from the Renaissance of um, Cesare Borgia, um, Borgia, and and others who, you know, were were 
were sort of using the naked fist or the fist in a the iron fist in a velvet glove. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But what's interesting about this is Machiavelli and his work, The Discourses, which are discourses on the first 10 books of Livy's History of Rome. That work by Machiavelli, um, a later work, is... Um, a Republican work. So this picks up what you were saying at the beginning, Bert, about the value of a republic. In that work, Machiavelli is thinking about principalities and republics, but he's very interested in the question, how can republics maintain their freedom? Mm. And what he emphasizes there is that we get a kind of transformation of the Greek and Roman idea of virtue into what an Italian Machiavelli calls virtu, which is a kind of effective virtue. It's like, how do you make virtue so that it succeeds? So it's sort of, it's still turning, it's still using virtue and draw, and he's in dialogue with Cicero and Plato about the traditional ideals of, of, of moral virtues. But he's also kind of saying, we have to make that virtue effective. And we have to, if we want to save a republic, we have to put it at the service of liberty and the people have to exercise their virtue to protect the republic and it's the the um aristocrats and oligarchs the wealthy who are going to try to undermine that republic and the people have to be the ones to protect it wow so much there how to make virtue something that uh it succeeds. That that's an interesting point, and in how it, it it you know serves the office holder, because office holders always want to to get reelected. That's for sure. <laughs> and, yeah. No, that's right. And and you know when I was talking about office holders earlier, you know I think there are a lot of real paradoxes and challenges in being a good office holder. It's not mm-hmm. an easy thing to do. Yeah. You know, if you want to get reelected, and you know you you have multiple different constituencies that you're trying to serve. You know, there's there's a kind of um, uh, contemporary uh, political debate that grows out of reflections on Machiavelli and others that talks about the ethics of dirty hands. You know, do you sometimes have to get your hands dirty in order to make politics succeed, even a virtuous politics and a good politics? And but what what I think Machiavelli would say is even if that's sometimes true, there have to be ways in which you still broadly remain accountable you still have to broadly remain accountable to the people to history you know you can't simply assume that everything you do just because you do it is justified and you can't start to delude yourself and think just because you want to do it or because it will help you politically survive that it's justified so it's that challenge to keep again that clear-sighted view like those ancient ideas of justice that clear-sighted view of what's genuinely necessary and what's genuinely in the service of the people and if you're an office holder who doesn't ask yourself that question doesn't see any difference between yourself and the the good that's a really a problem (laughs) it's a problem these we're talking about some eternal questions here if you just tuned in dear listener bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive we're going back to the very roots Uh, our guest today is melissa lane professor of politics at princeton university and she's got a new book out of rule and office plato's ideas of the political and it's amazingly applicable to issues today it's it's just so impressive that he could figure that out another book i mean machiavelli wrote more than one book plato wrote more than one book there's the allegory of the cave can it be argued fairly argued that many of the trumpers today are displaying a preference 
for staying comfortably within that simplistic fantasy described in Plato's cave. So the cave actually is found in the Republic. It's um it's in Book Seven of the Republic, um, but it's a very powerful and kind of it's it's been an incredibly resonant um, image yeah. that people have have thought about. Um, and and I think you know I think um, anybody who's kind of in denial about reality yeah. in some way is living in the cave. And I think that all of us in different ways have been guilty of this. So in an earlier book that I wrote, which was called Eco Republic, I actually said, you know, are all of us and, you know, for everything that each of us tries to do, most of us are still in this story, you know, insofar as we're still invested in the benefits of fossil fuel technology and civilization, we're also living in Plato's cave. Like we're also, Plato in that, in that allegory says, you know, People people think that they're getting honors and plaudits, but these are only honors and plaudits in the cave. They're not genuine. They're kind of ah. just shadows and they're delusory, right? And I think many of us in different ways on all sides of the political spectrum can sometimes find ourselves trapped in a cave because we don't want to acknowledge these difficult truths. So that difference between appearance and reality that Plato um, holds to Sometimes it's, again, it's it's dismissed as he's being too idealistic. But I think that very idealism is also challenging us to say, you know, where are we not being realistic? Where are right. we, where, where do we think we're being realistic, but really actually um, we're not? And it's so much easier to stay with what you know. Look at the shadows in front of you rather than go out into the light, which can be blinding at first. It's it's a challenge. You know, it's so much easier to do that. And people like easy things. So let's face it. Another word, there's a lot of words here, virtue, ethics, morality, office holders, freedom. The word freedom is a very powerful word. It has many interpretations. The people who stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, saw themselves as patriotic freedom fighters. You write that, quote, Plato's Socrates claims that these members of a failing democracy are influenced by distorted civic values, which redescribe anarchy as freedom. Please say more about this. Yeah, so, so this is one of the hardest challenges in political life, and I think we're really facing it now, is you know, how do we even find common words to describe political happening and political reality and, you know, people's experiences. And actually before Plato, um, Thucydides, the great Greek historian, wrote about moments where you have a polity kind of fall into a into a crisis. Um, and again, he actually, that very same language of calling anarchy freedom, he uses there. And Plato is clearly kind of echoing um, Thucydides, um, talking about, you know, the, these previous real um, historical moments. So it's it's very challenging. Um, Plato, I read as a theorist of freedom, which is, again, not a common way to read him. I think that's true even in parts mm. of the Republic, as I argue in a rule and office. But it's also very evident in one of his later his, his later works called The Laws. And what we see there is, an, is a theory of freedom which says, as a citizen, you enjoy freedom within the laws uh -huh. and through living in a rule of law and in, in a rule of law society. And and so freedom, I use this term, has to be made compossible with rule. Um, in other words, they, they both have to 
we have to be able to have them both at the same time. Uh-huh. And what he's what he's criticizing in that moment that you quoted um, in a degenerating democracy is a situation. And I think, again, this is very relevant in the United States today where people kind of say, you know, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? They'll right. say to an official, you know, why should I follow you? Right. And what Plato is saying in that situation is, you know, of course, sometimes it's right to challenge um, officials if they're misusing their power. We do need to do that. But if you just have a blanket policy of rejecting and refusing to follow rules and norms, again, that's the, the high road to anarchy because you can't have you can't have law. You can't have rule, and therefore you can't really have freedom. Because if you don't have law and you don't have rule, Hobbes would also say this, you're then kind of at the mercy of everybody else. You're just, you know, kind of in what Hobbes would later describe as a, as a kind of state of nature. Or Plato mm. would say you're, you're in a condition of anarchy. And that's not a condition in which anyone can flourish, can find virtue, can find happiness. Indeed. Yes. Uh, freedom and the respect for the commonwealth. I don't have a hard time with that, but it seems like some people do. The idea of, you know, like, well, if, you know, who are you to tell me what? It's like, you know, we have we have to live together somehow. I mean, that's the idea of having a republic of the people. And I'll tell you, it, it's interesting. When I was growing up, there was a genuine expectation that the president would set a moral and ethical example for the people of this country. We really did believe that. It was deeply shocking at the time when it became clear that Nixon had lied to us. Mm. It was just lying, the president lying? I mean, Mm. to to realize that. Now lying is to be expected from not just Trump, but there's, there's the widespread acceptance of lying as alternative truths has led to a breakdown of public trust of the government and thereby its legitimacy. What would Plato have to say about this development? And before you answer that, what about what would Plato see as the effect on young people and the future about, you know, expecting politicians to lie? This is a challenging question for Plato, um, partly because in the Republic, um, he does uh, talk about conditions where you can tell what sounds on the surface like a lie, but it expresses a deeper truth. And then there's even a moment in the Republic where he recommends that, but this is interesting, not, not directly that the rulers should lie to the people, but that the rulers themselves um, and the people should all believe a kind of myth about the founding of their society. Um, so this is actually a kind of uncomfortable question for Plato. I don't know if he's going to be our best guide on on lying and politics um, because he 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 is willing to say, well, you know, sometimes sometimes there are truths that 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 can only be expressed. Um, through a lie or a myth, and we may need to express them um, to express them that way. And um, so this is this is kind of a, a, a deep problem, I think. Um, and you know, I would never say Plato is our guide to everything. I just think mm. in rule and office, he's our guide to a lot of things and to the accountability of office holders and the importance of um, rule and office and law for uh, maintaining civic freedom. I think he's a great guide to to that. And, and yeah, I'm, he impresses the heck out of me. I'll tell you. <laughs> you note that in, in, that Trump pardoned the infamous Maricopa, Arizona sheriff Joe 
Arpaio, I'm not sure I pronounced that right, who was convicted of unlawful detaining of people and contempt of court. Not a good guy. Would Plato see this and Trump's general disregard for the law as some kind of anarchia or tyranny or both? So... So let me before yeah. I, so let me answer that, and then I do want to make one qualification to what I was just saying about sure. Plato as a great guide to freedom. Um, on the on the question of you know, I, I think Arpaio was exactly an example of someone who was convicted for not having lived up to the duties of his uh-huh. office and uh-huh. for having violated the duties of his office. Now the question of whether someone who's convicted should ever be pardoned. That's a kind of mm. further question, but but I think that if one is pardoning them while expressing the view that you know that that a, a, a that a so so the traditional philosophy of pardon is it's mercy. You you kind of say you know they did it, but but we're going to be merciful to them for some reason. And the Roman philosopher Seneca will will sort of defend mercy in these ways. That's very different from saying. You know, I reject the court's judgment. I don't think that this person was a criminal. I think they should be they should be treated as a hero. I think that's a much more Mm. problematic use of a pardon in a in a in a again in a rule of law constitution. So I would you know, I would be concerned about that sort of um, expression of of pardons. Um, But the other thing that I wanted to say, and, and, and I'm sure that some of your listeners will be wondering why I haven't said it already, and it's an important thing to say, is Plato is living at a time when everywhere in ancient Greece and in many other parts of the world, there were enslaved people. Oh, he yes. himself, we know, is an aristocrat who owns slaves, who takes for granted the existence of slavery in his writings, and who also... Um, uh, uses slavery as a metaphor sometimes um, for the way that he talks about rule, the way that he talks about the structure of the of the cosmos. So we have to acknowledge that. Um, one thing that I argue in of rule and office is that there's a very important moment in the Republic where he makes clear that he would expect that slaves who would have the chance to rebel would in fact rebel. So he isn't making the claim that that they should see their slavery as good for them or something like that. He recognizes it. Um, The actual existing chattel slavery, he recognizes in that moment, I think, as a form of exploitation. That isn't to say that he did anything to try to get rid of it, that he argued that it was unjust or wrong, that he tried to, you know, rebel against it. None of that. We can't defend him on any of those grounds. But I do think that he makes a distinction between you know, that existing chattel slavery and, um, you know, other uses of slavery as a kind of metaphor that that he uses where he thinks rule is for the good of the rules. I don't think that Uh. he says that that actual enslavement in in a chattel slavery form was for the good of the rules. And in that, he he is different, for example, from Aristotle, who did defend a form of natural slavery. Well, and he's also a little different from uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who thought slavery was uh, good for people, (laughs) that it would help people out. And in case you just tuned in, uh, listener, it's uh, Bert Cohen. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Melissa Lane, professor of politics at Princeton University. Her new book is Of Rule and Office, Plato's Ideas of the Political. And the Republic has to last beyond just one generation. So we have young people today seeing a 
one particular person who's in the news every day, all the time, who is not honorable. And I wonder about his what Plato's concerns about the future generations might be with with this kind of situation and kind of you know, normalizing this bizarre, uh, incredibly dishonest behavior. So I think Plato is would be very concerned that public officials um, set a set an set an unethical example and set an example of not living up to the demands of their role. That he he's he's very deeply when he thinks about moral development and you know how do people develop the right kinds of care and orientation and he actually talks a lot about early childhood education in his work the laws he talks about what music pregnant women should listen to and what sort of motions they should go through so he takes this kind of thing very seriously and really in, in the Republic there's also a very powerful passage when he says you know in in childhood it's without our even being aware of it, that our our moral sensibilities, our ethical values are formed in a certain way. Greek has this wonderful verb, um, lanthanein, which means it's kind of escaping my notice. So my character is being formed even without me really noticing it. And so he, I think, would be very concerned um, about, you know, the, the kind of decline that you described in your own lifetime from an assumption that public officials should model a kind of um, ethical behavior to an assumption that they can be indifferent to it or, you know, sort of um, just just produce it. Um, you know, having said that, I think Plato is also very aware that while a republic has to last for more than one generation, right. explicitly in book eight of his work, The Republic, um, he says any constitution will eventually decline because mm, all uh, kind of living things eventually decline all kind of human things and all living things. Laws of and, entropy, yeah. Yeah, and, and that is that is also kind of a very sobering moment. I mean, I think the only thing we can take from that give, might give us some hope from that is, you know, maybe when you and I were each younger, people didn't really worry about whether American democracy would survive or whether the Constitution would survive. You know, I would have never worried about that when I was in, in elementary school. That just wouldn't have even been a thing, no. you know. And I think maybe now, you know, young people and all of us, because we're more conscious of the fragility, and we see also in countries around the world that there has been democratic backsliding, electoral authoritarianism, authoritarian populism in many different countries, and so no no regime is guaranteed to last forever to be the gold standard. The Roman Republic declined, Athenian mm-hmm. democracy declined, and so you know it, I think it gives us a sense of this this is our moment, and this is our moment to care. Um, to demand that we have public officials who care for the health of the democracy and of the republic, of the of the good of the people, um, and and this is our moment to 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 do what we can to make sure this isn't the last moment, because some moment probably will be, you know, at some point, and and we we don't want that to be now, um, or mm. or in a, you know our children's lifetimes. Well, we certainly don't. I, I rather like a republic. I like the Constitution and uh, a democracy. Obviously, the name of the show is Keeping Democracy Alive, which I might add, we picked the name of the show before Trump got elected. Who knew? Uh, but the democracy is threatened very, very seriously today. And can we keep it alive? It's a big, big question here. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's uh, not... Th- you say that as those who violate the spirit of the public trust do not deserve the honors of their office. 
where people mm. in government ideally see themselves ideally as public servants today. Many act as if they are the public's masters. And some people kind of want a master. They look to, I mean, some of the uh, Trump people look to Putin as a master, as something, you know, like, oh, he'll just take care of things. He's a caudillo, as they say in Spanish. And, you know, just the, 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 the guy riding high on the horse. Uh, the, the public at least appears to be somewhat okay with the idea of there being, of, of the public servants being public masters. What can we do? <laughs> well, I think we, you know, I think, and what I try to do in a rural and office is again to go back to why did we want to turn them into public servants in the first place? You know, what what were, what was that arduous effort that the Greeks made and in other cultures and and, and time periods others have made um, to try to make that change? And the reason is because you know, even if a master seems benevolent for a time there's always the danger that they can turn tyrannical, right? They can turn exploitative. So, you know, you might be on their good side for now, but who knows what's going to happen next. And there's no control over the way that they use their power. So what office was about was really controlling power. It was controlling it and channeling it so that it could serve the good of the rules and do that more reliably and more robustly without that fear that the master who might seem benign at this moment mm. might turn malignant. And that's really become the ideal of Republican government. It's also the ideal, I think, of, of democratic government. And again, it's not that Plato was a Democrat, but I think he shared that aspiration that it's important mm. that power be controlled and channeled and 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 made to serve the people rather than you know um, solely to to master them. Um, so it's that it's it's that duality. It's going to remain power, but we need to constantly be trying to rein it in and to um, and and why do we want to do that? Because that's what gives us the best chance of enjoying. Um, freedom and with freedom we can also enjoy civic friendship yes we can pursue our own ends we can live in a republic of laws and you know that that's plato's last work was called the laws and that vision of a of a government that is truly um, oriented by the rule of law is also as deeply a platonic vision as the vision of the philosopher kings and queens the book is Of Rule and Office, Plato's Ideas of the Political. In what ways does your book offer fresh insights into the relationship between rule and office? And why should this be of interest, not just to scholars, as I'm sure it will be, but also to policymakers in particular and to the general public, but specifically, I suppose, to policymakers? So the, the, the connection between rule and office is that in ancient Greek, it's actually the same words that are used to express both. And so when we study these words in ancient Greek, it's the word on um, the verb archane and the, the noun is arche. And when we study the uses of those words, then we always have to ask ourselves, you know, it, are these words being used in a way that is in, in that is bringing with it that expectation of um, controlled, limited, accountable government, or is it not? You know, and I think that closeness, that 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 sense that office is always this um, relatively vulnerable and precarious emergence from rule. Office is what happens when you tame rule and you control it and you constitutionalize it. And 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 when you do that, though, part of what my book is saying to policymakers is. 
it's incredibly important to do that through procedures, but the procedures also can never be fully enough. Procedures can mm. always be abused. They can always be exploited cynically. They can be misused. And yes. so what Plato is telling us is you need more procedures and you also need to recognize that if people don't care about what the procedures are truly meant to be accomplishing, if the office holders don't care about the good of the rules and their duties of their office, any procedure is going to be undermined ultimately. And I think that's actually a very important lesson for Americans and for everyone who maybe has put a lot of faith in, you know, we have procedures, we're liberal Democrats, we have, we have constitutions, we have laws, we have all that, but that doesn't mean that they can't be abused, undermined, exploited, um, nullified, you know, abrogated. Procedures are not self-executing. Um, you know, some legal norms in a technical way can be self-executing, but the, the deeper vision is that you need office holders, judges, others, um, and citizens who care about the purposes that our procedures are meant to serve. Absolutely. The book is called, again, Of Rule and Office, Plato's Idea of the Political put out by Princeton University Press. Melissa Lane, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. And I'll ask the listener to stay tuned. I ha following this is a short ditty by those great thinkers, Monty Python. The song is The Philosopher's Song. Thank you so much for being with us, Melissa. My pleasure. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. George Stewart filled all his own free will on Hong Kong Chinese was particularly ill. Why do they say he could steal away? Have a great whiskey every day. Now he's not wearing some of the tobacco for the bottle. On to the song of his dram. And great day called the drunken father. Drink therefore I am. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.